Hello, all, and welcome to the American Society for Parenteral and Enteral Nutrition Aspen podcast on blenderized tube feedings, or also known as BTF. Practice recommendations from Aspen, which were published in Nutrition and Clinical Practice in December of 2023. This podcast will focus on Section 1, which are the practice recommendations for general use of blenderized tube feedings, along with Section 4, which are practice recommendations for follow-up and monitoring for patients receiving blenderized tube feedings. My name is Ainsley Malone from Aspen, and today we are honored to have with us Lisa App, who is an advanced practice dietitian in the Division of Endocrinology, Metabolism, and Nutrition at the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. Lisa was the lead author on these Aspen practice recommendations. We also are honored to have Chelsea Galboy, a consumer and a mom and a caregiver of a three-year-old boy who receives blenderized tube feedings. This podcast is brought to you by Aspen and has been supported by Nutritia of North America. I would like to start with you, Lisa. Based on the Aspen recommendations, what factors should be considered when deciding whether to use either a commercial blenderized tube feeding or prepared blenderized tube feeding, or as some might call these, home blends? Great question. I really feel like for me, the first thing that I look at, you know, yes, we look at the clinical picture and what's going on, but how long can this individual um, receive their feedings over? Because hang time, I feel like is one of the biggest differences between a commercial product and home blends. And so if somebody is unable to tolerate feedings over a shorter period of time where we need to have those home blends at room temperature for no less than two hours, then a commercial product might be a better option for them. So to me, that's the number one thing that I look at. Secondly, it's just time, time for the clinician and time for the individual. Do they have time to plan and shop and prepare food? Or do they maybe not have as much time and um, would prefer to have a ready-made product? So those are kind of two of the initial things that I would look at. Secondly, just the planning of, do you have the equipment that you need? Do you have the blender that you're going to use? Do you have all the supplies that you need? Are there any financial implications to using one or the other? And do we have a good plan in place before we get started? Great, Lisa. Those are to me, very important considerations. Thank you for those. Chelsea, can you share a bit with us about your decision to start a blenderized tube feeding and how did these factors apply to you and your son? One of my biggest things about when we were switching him from breast milk and he was on a little bit of just like baby formula at that time, switching to a different commercial product or something, I was really excited about the idea of being able to feed him what we ate as a family. So like food is a really big part of like, you know, our family and we really like to prepare different recipes and cook different things. So it was really exciting to me to be able to think that my son could be eating exactly what we were eating as a family. So it could still be that really important, like shared experience, just like in a different form. And so that was like a really big thing for me. Another thing was that I also really liked that I could have a little bit of control about over like what he ate. And, you know, so many times we're like, oh, we have to do this and we have to do this. But this was something that I really could be able to like pick and choose the ingredients that I 
was putting into his food. And I've gotten really into like expanding the variety of vegetables that he eats. And also in turn, that it has expanded the number of vegetables I eat <laughs> as an adult. So that has been a really fun piece of making home blends and different things. Another thing that Chelsea does, which is amazing, is she makes beautiful colors of her blends. So around holidays or special occasions, without using additives, she uses amazing different food varieties to make red and green for Christmas or orange and black for Halloween. And, you know, I feel like that's just shows her love for feeding her child in another way, too. I love that. And and you're so right, Chelsea. We really, you know, food is more than just what goes into our bodies physically. And so I think you've really captured that in, in how you describe things. Lisa, my question, my next question is for you. And so before starting a blenderized tube feeding, what factors should be considered based on the patient's type of enteral access device? And that includes not only the type, but the size, the timing of any replacement and clogging. I think those are really important considerations. So what would you like to share with everyone about that? Yeah, I think the first thing is we definitely feel that a gastrostomy tube is the preferred tube for using blenderized tube feeding. However, nasal tubes can be used based on the clinical situation. And even having a 14 French or greater tube is going to just help with flow and particle size, which you'll learn more about at a different time. But tubes all the way down to 10 French tube have been used in practice with thinner blends. Unfortunately, we just didn't have enough evidence to make recommendations for jejunostomy tubes with the use of blenderized tube feeding at this time. But in terms of clogging and replacement, there's really no evidence to show that enteral access device that's used for blenderized tube feeding would need to be replaced more often or it would clog more often. And really both legacy and enteral small bore connector tubes can both be used with blenderized tube feeding. That's great, Lisa. A lot of great considerations and important information there for certain. Chelsea, can you tell us a little bit about your experience with your son's feeding tube and how it relates to your use of prepared blenderized tube feeds or home blends, as you have called them? Yeah, my son has had a G-tube since he was like a month old. So we have really learned different things about when we make our home blends, about certain things that might blend a little bit better than other things, just to make sure, like Lisa was talking about, the tubes don't get clogged or anything. So like, especially with berry seeds, like we found that if they're frozen, they blend a little bit better. Yeah, you've learned, I'm sure you've learned the hard way, I would imagine, you know, in just trying different kinds of foods for sure. Yeah, one time like a whole bunch of berry seeds got stuck in there. And so then I just learned, okay, next time we're just going to we'll either blend that a little bit longer or like not put as many of those specific blackberries in it. <laughs> they made a great color though. Great for Halloween. Lisa, my next question is for you. What are the Aspen recommendations about hang time and storage for both prepared and commercial blenderized tube feeds. And I know you, you talked at the beginning about hang time and, and how that is, a, is a, an important consideration. Yes, I think the number one thing to keep in mind here is we're talking about 
food. So we recommend following the USDA guidelines for food safety. Different from using a formula in which we would use the Aspen Safe Entral Practice Guideline. So if we look at the USDA guidelines for food safety, food should not be at room temperature for greater than two hours if it's less than 77 degrees in the air temperature and only one hour if it's greater than 90 degrees. So that's, I feel like, a big difference between formulas that we're used to seeing, which have longer hang times. When it comes to commercial blenderized tube feeding, there is a wide range of hang times from two hours if there's really only food in the blend versus up to 12 hours if maybe there's more additives or things like that. So um, when it comes to the commercial product, it's important to look at that manufacturer recommendation. But even if you're going to take a commercial product and add one food to it, you've now made that food instead of formula. And so the hang time is two hours. A couple of other considerations just would be that, you know, following other food safety guidelines like you would for leftovers. For example, you wouldn't keep leftovers in the fridge for two weeks and then eat it. So we don't want you to take food that has prepared in the refrigerator for two weeks and blend it up. So just following those kind of food safety guidelines like you would food instead of formula, I think is a bit of a change here. That's great, Lisa. Really great advice and recommendations. My next question is also for you. What enteral supplies are helpful as you teach families about using and administering blenderized tube feeding? What are, what are the really important supplies that you are going to be sharing with them? Yeah, so I usually give a list of all the ways to administer tube feeding. Here are the supplies in each category that may work the best. So if an individual has a low-profile feeding tube, using the straight bolus connector instead of the right-angle connector might make it easier to administer a thicker blend. Using O-ring syringes might make it easier to push the syringe versus a syringe with a big rubber stopper on it, which can get kind of sticky and harder to push sometimes. Using large bore gravity bags instead of small bore gravity bags. Using reusable feeding tube pouches. And when it comes to a pump, um, I feel like there are things that we're just not sure about. We do know that priming is going to likely take longer that thicker formulas might result in inconsistent times of feeding and that pump rates might need to increase to compensate for this kind of thicker formula. So really looking at the manufacturer guidelines for the pump is recommended. And then lastly, really the supply that we recommend not using would be a strainer or a sieve because we don't want to throw away any of those particles. Like Chelsea was saying with the blackberry seeds, figuring out a way to make that work in the blend rather than putting food through a strainer, which might decrease some of the nutritional value. That's really great, great advice and great recommendations. And so kind of moving to Chelsea's side of this question, can you share with us your experience in using some of these tools when you administer your son's um, feeding? Do you use syringes or a pump? And do you have any tips on how to get your supplies or, or challenges that you've had and how you've overcome them and getting these important supplies for your son's nutrition? Yeah, we do um, a bolus feed with my son. So we use 60 mil syringes 
And um, like Lisa was talking about, <laughs> we use the big rubber stopper ones because that is just what our supply company has. And so I've learned that when you wash them, it's very important to wash them in cool water, not really hot water, because the hot water kind of expands the tip of that rubber syringe that makes it really hard to push. I've also have learned that different starches make your blend a different consistency. So for example, if I, if I've made like a chicken noodle soup, like with egg noodles, that will blend up a lot smoother and is a lot easier to push as opposed to the other night I had made brats and baked potatoes and then put, you know, a vegetable and a fruit in it with some other things. But that blend was a lot thicker and is a lot harder to push. So I just use that with newer syringes after I've opened them because they're a lot easier to push after the new ones. So instead of like avoiding certain foods, I just use them at different points throughout the syringe's life, <laughs> I guess I would say. We wash our syringes just, I honestly just use like an old ice cream bucket because that's, you know, the own, the own germs or whatever from that. And we wash them out in there and just some bottle dryers. We use those to dry out all of our syringes. And so like a lot of the products that you can, you know, get at a, a store can be helpful in like cleaning and different things. We found a lot of like nice silicone water bottle cleaners that fit really nice in those syringes so that you can really make sure that you're getting that food that kind of can get stuck at the bottom or the tip. We found those to work really nice for cleaning them. And unfortunately, those syringes, they don't last super long, but we've been able to make it work. I've heard people that kind of rub olive oil on the sides of them to make it a little bit slicker when you're pushing it too, but then you lose the numbers on the front of them. So, you know, everything's kind of just like a little bit of a give and a take, but we make it work and I really enjoy it. As part of like the getting supplies and different things, I work closely with his dietitian to like talk about like what supplies that he, he would need. And then we just worked through our medical supply company and they um, deliver his syringes and supplies that he needs for that on a monthly basis. And so that has worked really well. The big rubber stoppers aren't my favorite, but we're making them work. Wow, Chelsea, your experiences are so insightful. It's just so interesting to learn about different foods and what becomes thicker and one isn't as thick. That's just really so interesting. Lisa, this is really kind of a question focused on recommendations from the practice paper on cleaning of preparation equipment, administration sets, and any other feeding supplies for both the hospital environment and in the home. And, and I know Chelsea spent a great amount of time in sharing with us her experiences with cleaning things. So what is, from your perspective as a clinician, is important from the, the practice recommendation side for cleaning? So one thing she didn't mention was just the cleaning of her blender, which I'm sure she does. But that might be the first thing to think about is, you know, really the goal is to prevent cross-contamination. And so cleaning the blender, either according to the manufacturer guidelines or using some recommendations from the paper where you disassemble it, wash it with soapy water, sanitize it by soaking it in a water bleach solution and letting it air dry, then you're really starting off with that clean surface. 
As far as some other supplies, I know, Chelsea, you don't use administration sets, but for administration sets, we just recommended rinsing the sets with safe drinking water in between use to clear out any debris and then storing the administration set like a gravity bag or a pump bag in the refrigerator in between uses and then discarding after 24 hours or per manufacturer guidelines. And then for all those other items that kind of Chelsea was talking about, I call feeding items like bottles or syringes or things like that. The CDC actually does have guidelines for cleaning feeding items like this. Um, and at this point, in the absence of other guidelines, that's really what the paper recommends is using those CDC guidelines, which are similar to cleaning the blender, which is cleaning with soapy water, rinsing, and then putting in a bleach water solution in between uses for some of those more disposable-ish type of items. Great. Thank you. Thank you, Lisa. What are the Aspen recommendations that were included in the paper for follow-up and monitoring for those that are receiving blenderized tube feeds? And then how do they differ from those individuals that are receiving non-blenderized tube feeding formulas? Are there, in, are there differences in, in how we follow up and monitor these folks? Yeah, I think the biggest difference is just that in a process like starting blenderized feeding, it is more of a process. So at first, we do recommend that you would have follow-up every one to two months until the individual is on a stable regimen. You know, that all the questions have been answered, all the kinks have been worked out, and then really feeling like that can be extended to every four to six months, more similar to any other individual on tube feeding. So I think really the only difference is that initial time period of kind of getting going and Really, we didn't recommend any standard lab monitoring. It really should just be based on clinical situation because really, you know, one could argue that if you're using a wide variety of foods and a home prepared blenderized feeding, that you don't need lab monitoring because we wouldn't monitor my labs for what I eat. That's why we didn't recommend standard lab monitoring, but it would be more based on clinical situation. That makes perfect sense, Lisa. And and then kind of, Chelsea, from your perspective, what is your experience? Can you share with us your experiences for your follow-up for your son and ongoing monitoring of his, you know, of his feeding, of his nutrition status, et cetera? Yeah. Like Lisa was saying at the beginning, we were monitored a bit more at, at the start of trying home blends and weighed him more frequently just to make sure that he was getting what he was needing from the home blends. And as time went on, that has kind of tapered off. And now I feel like we just meet as frequently as, you know, not very often at all, actually. And, you know, I just reach out if I have a question or or something, which has been really great. Kind of like what uh, you guys were talking about labs. It's interesting because when I meet with his other providers, they're always like, oh, we know how many nutrients and stuff you're putting in those home blends. Like we're not concerned about any of his nutrients or whatever that he's getting because, you know, you're doing such a great job of incorporating a wide variety of things in his diet. So that always makes me feel good that I'm like, you know, helping in that way or, you know. That's fantastic. 
Well, and I think it's helpful to have those providers who are supporting you as well, because, you know, I think that we're all part of the healthcare team, right? The dietitian, the physician, you, your son, and when everybody's on the same page and excited about what you're doing, I think it makes, you know, the practice a lot easier for everyone. And that, that is an awesome segue to the end of our podcast. I think this has been fabulous. We've gotten some great recommendations and expertise from Lisa, as well as our wonderful um, patient uh, mom, Chelsea, talking about her experiences with her son. So I really want to thank you all for listening to this podcast. I also want to thank Lisa and Chelsea so much for sharing your expertise and your thoughts today to our Aspen audience. And Our appreciation goes out to Nutricia North America for support of this podcast. Thank you all so much. 